imagine if you would looking out and seeing nothing but water you are out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean you've been on this trip for months went over to England you're on your way back all you're thinking about right now is seeing your family your friends when on the horizon you see sails not the oddest thing in the world however ocean big not very common either so now you wait and as these ships get closer they raise a black flag with a death head on it these are pirates you know this and you also know you can't fight them you would lose you can't run from them because with all your goods you're too heavy so you have to sit and wait when the pirates pull up the first man to jump onto your ship is a very large man a man with pistols loaded and in holsters all up and down his body a man with what seems to be smoke and fire coming from underneath his hat and a man with a very long black beard you'd be forgiven for thinking that maybe you found yourself in hell that this was the devil when in fact this was the infamous pirate Blackbeard the thing about Blackbeard that is interesting is one his whole entire career as the captain of a pirate ship lasted only about a year and a half to go along with that nobody knows who he truly was nobody knows exactly how old he was nobody knows his real name numerous names have been given for teach thatch tatch one thing that they all seem to agree on is his first name was edward another thing not quite known is where blackbeard came from many say it's from the bristol region of england in a place in bristol known as red cliff local legend was when Blackbeard was in his early teens, his drunk, abusive stepfather decided to hit him one too many times, and Blackbeard beat him half to death. Now this would have caused Blackbeard to had to run to the docks and sign on as a cabin boy with local merchantmen, and they think that's why he found himself in the Caribbean around 1697. Now that would be a good and interesting start to his journey, however... There's been no evidence found about this. There's been no documentation that shows of a man around that time being beaten half to death by his stepson. So all of this is just the possibility. This is just historians and fans just grasping at straws, trying to pick and choose where he might have actually came from. But one thing that seems to be what everybody agrees on is that Blackbeard was actually a privateer before he became a pirate. He was a privateer during the Queen Anne's War, which ended around 1713. And as a privateer, that would have pretty much meant he was doing legalized piracy. This meant that everything he did, he did in the name of the Queen, and he could not be held responsible for it. So they could burn the ships to the ground, steal their goods, pretty much do everything a pirate would do, but under the guise of doing it for England, so doing it legally. So after... Queen Anne's War ended about 1713. We don't really know too much about the next 
three years or so of Blackbeard's life. We don't know whether he's a stand-up citizen, went straight to piracy. We don't know really anything until he actually joined another famous pirate by the name of Benjamin Hornigold. And just like with Blackbeard and, to be honest with you, most pirates in general, Hornigold's early life is just shrouded in mystery. Nobody really knows too much. I mean, the popular conception is that he was a privateer for the British during Queen Anne's War as well, but that can't be backed up by fact. So it would seem that when Blackbeard got to New Providence, he hooked up with who was arguably the most respected man in the whole territory, which was Hornigold. And Blackbeard would have found New Providence at the time like a dream for him, for pirates. There was no legal authority. It was all just a bunch of ramshackle tents and huts. And the only leadership were the pirate captains who happened to be present at the time who would get together and make their own decisions on how to govern the island. So it's in that setting that Captain Hornigold and Blackbeard started their pirate adventures. And this was around the summer of 1716 when we first start hearing confirmed reports of Blackbeard with Hornigold. And we only get this report because it was at this time when Blackbeard actually got his first captaincy. It would have been a ship that Hornigold and Blackbeard took while they were out on the seas. And this also goes to show exactly how much respect Hornigold would have had for Blackbeard. And again, we don't have much information on Blackbeard's early life. We don't even have much or really any information of him during his times as a privateer. However, the speed in which he went from being newly introduced to Hornigold to Hornigold giving him his own ship to captain would suggest that Blackbeard was a very formidable man. Blackbeard knew his trade. Blackbeard was able to convince people to follow him, to trust him. And it was also around this time, back in New Providence, that Benjamin Hornigold and Blackbeard met yet another pirate that will become integral to the story of Blackbeard. This man's name was a Mr. Steed Bonnet. Steed Bonnet, also known as Major Bonnet, allegedly for getting to the rank of Major in the militia, has an entirely, we'll just say, unique tale. In Captain Johnson's book, A General History of Pirates, Major Steed Bonnet is described as a gentleman of good reputation in the island of Barbados, was master of a plentiful fortune, and had the advantage of a liberal education. So what that says to us is he was a rich landowner. He had means, he had a family, and again, he had attained the rank of major in the island's militia. He was set up pretty good, and one day he just decided he wanted to go a pirating, which... Some people have pointed out that it was for an unhappy marriage, which, if that's the case, this is the worst midlife crisis I've ever heard of. A midlife crisis of, oh, my wife told me to do the dishes one too many times, I am going to go get my own ship and pirate and become the scourge of the ocean. A little bit extreme, but hey, maybe. We don't know. So another thing that was different about Major Bonnet was most pirates of this time, if they decided they wanted to become pirate captains, they would go out, they would steal their own ship. They would get volunteers to help them man the ship in order to start their pirate career. 
but again, Major Bonnet was a man of means, so he actually went about the beginning of his pirate career in a rather legal way. He bought a ship, which again, not exactly what they were doing at the time, and instead of taking volunteers, Major Bonnet paid his men, almost like a salary. It was during this time, Major Bonnet seemingly started his pirate career and found some initial success until he ran into a Spanish ship of war. Now, these Spanish ships of war, they were heavily laden with guns. They had, obviously, men of more strict discipline than a pirate crew. They allegedly, again, records are a little fuzzy, killed or injured nearly half of Major Bonnet's crew, including himself. He was injured as well, but they were able to escape. And they made it back to New Providence. And this is where Benjamin Hornigold and our one and only Blackbeard come to find Major Bonnet. Now, what was said between the crews, we don't know. I mean, obviously at this time, Major Bonnet's crew had to have understood he wasn't a pirate captain. He was not a pirate captain. He was a man possibly going through one of the oddest midlife crises in the world. And he was a man who was a dreamer. He was not the captain that they needed. He was not the captain that they wanted. Somehow, Blackbeard was able to convince Major Bonnet that they should take charge of his ship, and he could stay with Blackbeard on his ship, and he could live in a life of leisure and luxury and not do anything. So, much to the happiness of Major Bonnet's crew, for some reason, Major Bonnet agreed to those terms. So now... Benjamin Hornigold and Blackbeard added another ship to their floating armada. Now, I should also put in, again, facts around this time are very hard to come by. Many people say that Blackbeard actually met Major Bonnet out on the high seas, and he did this after he left the company of Benjamin Hornigold. However, it seems more likely that he and his crew would be more open to the idea of, let's just say, a change in captaincy after such a time as getting their butts handed to them by a Spanish ship of war, rather than having moderate success meeting a random ship out in the ocean and saying, yeah, you know what, they can take over. So that is why I go with the story of them meeting at New Providence while Major Bonnet's ship was being repaired after they fought the Spanish ship of war. And it was shortly after this time, in the approximate date of November 28th of 1717, when Blackbeard found his dream ship. La Concorde. La Concorde was a French slaver ship, and the reason why it was taken so easily was the French crew was not in the best shape. The majority of the crew was suffering from scurvy and dysentery, and by the time Blackbeard and his now newly found ship, the Ranger, which was Major Bonnet's ship, and Benjamin Hornigold, came into view, they only had 23 men to resist. Those 23 men, obviously, did not put up a fight. They knew that they could not put up a fight. So after Blackbeard and the now floating armada took this ship, we come to another debated topic of the Pirate Age, and that was how inclusive the crews were. The ship they took, La Concorde, as previously mentioned, was a slaver ship. It was coming with hundreds of slaves down in the hold. Now, many pirates of this age were portrayed as almost anti-heroes, where to come upon a slave ship like this would be perfect for them because they could free all the potential slaves, have them help them with their crews, or send them about their way with freedom. 
that is not the case. Now, Blackbeard did free a select group of these slaves. He checked them over and took the most imposing and formidable of them to actually be in his crew. The remainder of the slaves were put in pens that they built on the island after they took La Concorde so that the French would not lose their merchandise. So it was after this that Blackbeard was given permission by Benjamin Hornigold to turn this ship into his own floating fortress. So Blackbeard ended up outfitting this ship with roughly 40 guns and he had a new name for it instead of La Concorde. It would now be known as Queen Anne's Revenge. So just a small offshoot, the French crew that were left on the island were actually given one of Blackbeard's smaller ships. And the French, even after such a <laughs> bad roll of the dice in fortune, they still had a sense of humor. And this new ship they were given, now I'm not French, so if I butcher this, I apologize, they named Mauvais Recontre, which means bad meeting, which I think is a little bit of an understatement, but that's okay. And it was after the capture of Queen Anne's Revenge that Hornigold and Blackbeard part ways, and when they do part ways, they're never to be together again. They'll never see each other again. Now, there are many possible reasons to this. It was about this time that the rumblings of the King's Royal Pardon that would soon be coming out was to be open to all pirates. One could argue that it was this knowledge that took apart this team because Benjamin Hornigold wanted the pardon, whereas Blackbeard at this time didn't seem to really want the pardon. So whatever reason they decided to part ways, it was the last time they were together. But as soon as Benjamin Hornigold left the company of Blackbeard, Blackbeard showed that he was the formidable pirate that we all know today. It was in the Boston newsletter sometime later that November. It was said, a great ship from Boston was taken at or near St. Lucia or St. Vincent, by one Captain Teach, the pirate in a French ship of 32 guns, a brigantine of 10 guns, which was more than likely the aforementioned Major Bonnet's Revenge, and a sloop of 12 guns. And it was a little bit after this where they also took another ship, and the reason that this certain ship is important to the tale is it was taken on December 19th of 1717, and the ship's captain, Henry Bostock, actually wrote a deposition, and the captain, Henry Bostock, actually wrote a deposition and filed it with the governor of Antigua. Bostock stated that he was hailed by a large ship and sloop and was ordered by one Captain Teach to board. Now, Bostock did mention that he was not mistreated at all. However, all of his cargo was taken. But the reason why this certain deposition was so important was for one certain sentence in there. Captain Bostock said, and I quote, A tall spare man with a very black beard which he wore very long. And this would be the beginning of the infamous nickname Blackbeard. So I know we're slightly jumping around. However, we did speak about the pardon that Captain Hornigold had heard about earlier. And that pardon was signed by King George on September 5th of 1717. It was called the Proclamation for Suppressing Pirates. And the proclamation read as such, We have thought fit to issue this, our royal proclamation. And we do hereby promise and declare that in case any of the said pirates shall, on or before the 5th of September in this year of our Lord, 1718, surrender to him or themselves to one of our principal secretaries in Great Britain, Ireland, or any governor or deputy governor of any of our plantations beyond the seas, every such pirate or pirate so surrendering him or themselves, as as foresaid, shall have a gracious pardon of and for such 
his or their piracy or piracies by him or them committed before the 5th of January next ensuing. Now, the timing of that, all piracies on or before the 5th of January next ensuing, was quite an important part of that document for the simple fact that the information had to travel across the Atlantic. Yes, it was signed on September 5th of 1717. However, it was signed in England. So it wouldn't reach Jamaica and the Bahamas until early December. That meant that the pirates in the Caribbean only had roughly a month to stop their pirating ways. They only had a month to decide whether this was something that they wanted to undertake. Also, just to sweeten the deal for pirates who would like to take the pardon, they also added in that after such time of the 5th of January, there was then a reward for all pirates and pirate captains who had not come to the pardon. So this ensured that not only would normal everyday sailors be able to collect a bounty on any pirates they found, but those former pirate crews could still earn a living pretty much doing what they were doing, going around the seas, finding pirate ships, though, instead of merchant ship, and capturing their crews. And it was under this circumstance that Hornigold found himself when he got back to New Providence. Upon arriving, Hornigold and approximately 209 other pirates decided that they would give their surrender to one Captain Pierce who was there out of New York. Now, Captain Pierce did warn the now former pirates that there would soon be a governor coming from Britain. The days of lawlessness in New Providence were quickly going to be coming to an end. Now, the governor didn't arrive until the nightfall of July 26, 1718. And the person picked to be the governor of this, I guess you could call outlaw settlement, was a former privateer himself. So he understood the pirates, he understood their motives, he understood how to deal with them. His name was... Woods Rogers. Now, many argue that one reason why Blackbeard never did return to New Providence after this time was Woods Rogers was also from Bristol. So some argue that Blackbeard did not want to come. He did not want to show his face because he didn't want somebody to recognize him and know his true identity. Now, Rogers, being the former privateer and knowing how to deal with these pirates, he came with a considerable show of force. He arrived with five ships, two of which were very large warships. Rogers then positioned himself to block both of the entrances into the New Providence Harbor. That way, nobody could leave the harbor who was not wanting to sign the pardon. He would be able to deal with them then and there. And it was at this time, with this blockade, that another man comes into this story. And he's coming into it because what he did that night is something that you would only see in a movie. This is something that, if I told you, was one of the climactic scenes in the, in the next Pirates of the Caribbean movie with Johnny Depp leading this escape, you would have probably agreed. However, this was done by the infamous pirate Charles Vane. Now, when Rogers got there that night, he set up his blockade, and he had his crew lay down for the night. They expected a quiet night before coming ashore the next morning to a big, grand show. And that is where they were mistaken. Because that night, Charles Vane converted one of his ships into... For lack of a better way to put it, it was a floating firebomb. They had powder stocks laid on board. The guns were already loaded. They had flammable materials just piled up everywhere on the ship, and they doused the sails with the combustible material. So Vane was ready for his Pirates of the Caribbean-style escape. Vane then cut the anchors of that ship and sailed it directly at the three ships that were blocking the western entrance of the harbor, one of those ships being one of the large warships we spoke of before. When Vane gave the order... Boom. They lit this ship up. And, again, it was a floating firebomb. Vane then rescued the little skeleton crew he had on that ship to set it ablaze. And he put his flagship right in behind the burning ship. 
as the flames just started covering that ship, going directly towards the warship, the guns began to cook off, just fire off from each side. Now, these British ships, they saw this firebomb coming right towards them. They had nothing else to do. They had to cut their anchors and try to get out of the way of this floating inferno. And when they did, that gave Vane's flagship the opportunity to slip right between them. And as he was going in between them, just to add a little insult to injury, Vane fired off shots from his starboard and port side towards all the retreating ships. And it was under this, again, Pirates of the Caribbean-type escape that Charles Vane was able to get out of the New Providence Harbor and continue on his pirating ways because he did not want to side in the pardon. So I know I took a little brief hiatus from our antagonist in this story, Blackbeard, but I felt that you had to understand exactly how things had changed back where he became a pirate. New Providence was turning itself into a more respectable outpost for the British. He couldn't just go back and expect no consequences for his actions. So... Now we rejoin Blackbeard again, and he's still commanding the Queen Anne's Revenge. He'd put one of his lieutenants, Lieutenant Richards, in charge of the Revenge, which was the ship, obviously, captained by Major Bonnet. And Major Bonnet is still willowing away in the cabin of Queen Anne's Revenge. But they'd keep growing their own floating armada when, off of an island called Turnip Island, which is off of now what is Belize, the Queen Anne's Revenge and the Revenge, they laid anchor. This was a place where... The crews could get off, they could take on water, they could try to find more food for their journeys. And it was here that they found another unsuspecting ship coming towards their position. Now that same ship was, again, going to do the same thing that Blackbeard's crew were doing. They wanted to gather fresh water and food for themselves, but they picked the wrong place. Upon seeing this ship, it was Lieutenant Richards who quickly pulled his anchor first and gave chase, followed quickly by Blackbeard. Now the captain of this unsuspecting ship... As soon as Lieutenant Richards and Blackbeard got close enough, they hoisted the black flag with the death head, the Jolly Roger. He knew that he had no chance, so he dropped anchor, and he waited for the ships to catch up to him. When the Queen Anne's Revenge got alongside, he, Blackbeard ordered a ladder placed over, and the ship's captain, David Harriet, he came aboard. Now, after some time talking to Blackbeard, we don't know exactly what was offered or threatened, but Harriet and his crew, they all decided to join Blackbeard and to form their own pirate crew and their ship that would become known as the Adventurer. Now Blackbeard, he obviously wasn't a fool. He did not trust Harriet. He did not want to give him and his crew their own ship to be pirates. He knew that they'd either go off on their own or they would go report Blackbeard to the closest authority. So Blackbeard took half of his crew and put him on the Queen Anne's Revenge with him while leaving the other half still on the adventurer. However, underneath the new captain, which was one of Blackbeard's close confidants, Israel Hands. So, it was around April 1718 at this time, Blackbeard was bolstered by another ship, and his now small armada sailed north into the Bay of Honduras, and it happened upon five ships. Now, when it came upon them, only one of the ships was a large ship, the other four, they were smaller sloops, so... Blackbeard fired a cannon shot, which was normally done across the other ship's bow to get their attention. And get their attention it did, because this ship was known as the Protestant Caesar, and it was captained by Captain War. Now, I might be mispronouncing that. It's spelled W-Y-A-R. Again, not a linguistic. I'm sorry. So Captain War and his men, they saw what was approaching, and they decided they were not going to stick around. However... Their ship was too large and too slow to maneuver out of the way. So, 
he and his crew got in their lifeboats, and they hurriedly rowed ashore to the safety. The other four sloops, they just waited where they were for Blackbeard and his two ships to come upon them and do what they would. Now, Blackbeard first started to strip the Protestant Caesar of all of its goods, and then Blackbeard found that the Protestant Caesar was from Boston. The reason why this is important in the grand scheme of things was Boston had just tried, found guilty, and hung a whole group of pirates. So in retribution for those pirates, Blackbeard, after stripping the Protestant Caesar of all of its goods, burned it to the ground. Or to the ocean, you should say. Blackbeard and his crew then stripped the other four sloops, three of which were allowed to go about their way after all their goods were seized. One was also burnt for the simple fact that their captain complained of all of his goods being taken. Now again, if you did not fight with Blackbeard, if you did not argue with Blackbeard, you'd normally escape with your life and your ship intact, as this captain quickly found out. After burning the final ship, Blackbeard and his crew, they then sailed to the Grand Caymans, where they took another small turtling ship, which is just a small sloop in itself. They took that and added yet another ship to their, again, growing armada. It now counted four ships. They then continued to the Port of Havana, where they could sell all their plunder, they could replenish their supplies, get fresh water, food, and probably most importantly for the pirates, rum, because these gentlemen did like their drink. Now, after replenishing all those items, they made their way to the Bahamas, where a little pastime for pirates was to go to where the ships normally sank, which was on reefs around the island, and they would go treasure hunting. However, it was a pastime that had pretty much stripped all valuables from that area. So after their failed attempts at some treasure hunting, Blackbeard and his men then continued sailing north. They captured a few more ships along the way, and it was on the 22nd of May, 1718, when Blackbeard would undertake his most daring feat, and possibly the thing that he is most famous for, and that was his blockade of Charleston. Coming up to Charleston, Blackbeard decided he'd do almost what Woods Rogers did down in New Providence, and he would just blockade the entire harbor. That away, any ship trying to exit Charleston or enter Charleston, he could stop, ransack, and do whatever he pleased. The first ship that came out to meet these four floating vessels was the pilot boat, which the pilot boat would normally go out and then it could guide new ships into the harbor around all the sand dunes to ensure that the ship didn't run aground. It must have been quite a fright for that pilot boat captain when he came aboard the Queen Anne's Revenge to see hundreds of dirty, well-armed pirates. Now, after that first pilot boat, another ship, which was a great prize for the pirates, attempted to leave the harbor. The ship was called the Crowley, and it was bound for London. And the thing about the Crowley was, this was a passenger ship. So, underneath the deck were multiple rooms with very respectable members of Charleston society. The Crowley was going to be bound for London, but obviously took a brief hiatus to let all of its passengers become prisoners for Blackbeard. Now... The added benefit for Blackbeard was not only did he get all of the valuables off of all of the passengers, but this was a ship that would be loaded up with quite a bit of food and water since they had to feed all of the passengers all the way across the Atlantic. So the next day, the Charleston people, they were still unaware of what was lurking outside their harbor. Now, it would be fair to assume that after taking all of the passengers prisoner, that Blackbeard probably put the Crowley around the backside of his ships. That way, the people of Charleston 
they would still be a little in the dark about what was going on. And that next day, Blackbeard captured another two ships attempting to leave the harbor. And it was about this time after the two ships the second day that the people of Charleston finally realized they had a wolf at their door. And it couldn't have came at a worse time for the people of Charleston because they had just gotten done with a very long, very expensive Indian War. And their harbor, it was not necessarily protected for a siege or even if the pirates had decided to attack. And in the harbor, there were another eight remaining merchant ships, which you can imagine the people of Charleston who had stock in these ships and the captains themselves, they had to realize the danger they were in. I mean, they could not leave the harbor. If they tried to leave, obviously, they would be captured by the pirates outside their harbor. But if they sat there for too long, all the goods in their holes, the rice, the tobacco, things like that, could go bad, which would lose all the money in their venture. It was also that second day where Blackbeard and his crew, they were able to capture two small ships entering the harbor. And again later the day, they got another prize in the form of yet another slave trading ship. This ship had 86 slaves aboard. And again, Blackbeard was not an inclusive freedom fighter. He took 14 of the slaves that he thought would work the best to add to his crew, but left the other 72 in order to go with their captor. It was then that Blackbeard made his once known. And from the second ship they'd captured, with all the prominent passengers from Charleston Society, they chose one man among them, Master Marks, to accompany Lieutenant Richards, who was at the time Captain the Revenge, and a couple other pirates, to go with them into Charleston to give their demands. And upon going into Charleston and the Charleston citizens finding out the demands from Blackbeard, they probably were a little excited when they found out that there wasn't a large sum of money demanded, because at that time, after the Indian Wars and that, they were not a rich colony. However, all Blackbeard demanded was medicine. Now, Blackbeard did ensure that Master Marks explained to the people of Charleston that his men were not to be harmed and that they would need to have the medicine in the next few days. Blackbeard was known to have stated to Mr. Marks, and I quote, I will come over the bar for to burn the ships that lay before the town and to beat it about our ears, end quote. And that would be if they did not meet their demands or if they injured any of his men. Though a few days later, the medicine was gathered and ready to return to a now getting frantic pirate crew, there was a little bit of controversy because Master Marks in the medicine was ready to go back to the ship and get the exchange over with. But Master Marks was not able to find Lieutenant Richards or the other pirates. So there was a very chaotic scramble in order to find these men. And when they did find them, well, Lieutenant Richards and his compatriots were passed out drunk. So despite the best efforts of the pirates, it was actually a peaceful ending when the medicine was given over and Blackbeard lifted his blockade and sailed north. Now, a few theories have come about on why Blackbeard only asked for medicine. He could have demanded whatever he wanted. He had the people of Charleston at his mercy. But there was only the demand of medicine. Now, one theory is that he and his crew going to so many exotic locations had begun to suffer from some sort of disease that they'd brought about in the West Indies or the Gulf of Honduras. Another theory that was brought up was the pirates were fighting a horrible case of some venereal disease, more than likely syphilis. Now, when archaeologists found the remains of Queen Anne's Revenge years later, 
they found a metal urethral syringe that was used to administer mercury in order to treat syphilis. Now, I don't know if I should <laughs> encourage you to look up pictures of this online or not. Because, man, I will be honest with you, this is one of the most unpleasant looking things I've ever found because the metal tip was used to insert down the urethra and put mercury in a man's groin. Keep that in mind when you look it up. Now, after Blackbeard and his crew departed from Charleston, the medicine was not their only reward because, as we stated earlier, all the passengers from that second ship they captured had all of their valuables taken as well as all of the food, water, or anything that would be of any use to Blackbeard and his crew. Now, it'd be fairly certain at this time that as Blackbeard departed Charleston, he had become aware of the pardon that was being offered to the pirates. But Blackbeard would have also known that after the blockade of Charleston that his ship, especially the Queen Anne's Revenge, being so large, would be easily identifiable. These two factors may have helped influence his future decisions in regards to him, his crew, and his ships. And it was on June 2nd of 1718 when Blackbeard and his floating armada sailed into what is called Topsail Inlet off the coast of North Carolina. Now, it's said that Blackbeard had actually sailed in that area before, so he should have had some local knowledge of the inlet. But as the Queen Anne's Revenge led the ships into the inlet, the Queen Anne's Revenge suddenly it veered starboard, which... If you don't know, starboard is right, port is left. It veered starboard and ran aground on a sandbar. Now, this seems to have been done purposely, and it seems that Blackbeard also let a few others in on his plan because quickly after it ran aground, he hailed Israel Hands, who was still captaining the adventurer, to try to help pull them free. Now, Israel Hands did an amazing job because he was somehow able to not only get the Queen Anne's Revenge further stuck aground, but to get his ship, the Adventurer, stuck aground as well. So for most pirate crews, their largest ship, as well as another, had both run aground. For most pirate crews, this would be just a mortal blow to their piratical ways. But for Blackbeard, this was just the first step of his plan. And the second part of his plan fell upon the hapless Mr. Major Bonnet, who was still toiling away on the Queen Anne's Revenge. It was at this time Blackbeard actually confessed to Bonnet that he was going to accept the royal pardon that had been issued. Because even though they were past the initial date of January 5th, the governors of the territories had the abilities to hand out pardons after the allotted date. And he knew the North Carolina governor, Charles Eden, was a lot more sympathetic to pirates and would be a lot more willing to hand out late pardons. So Blackbeard encouraged Bonnet to go before him while he helped clean up the Rex of Queen Anne's Revenge and the Adventurer, and Major Bonnet could apply for a pardon and also a letter of incentive because they knew that there was another war coming to England. And if they were able to receive a letter of incentive, they would be able to become buccaneers, which, or privateers, which, as we spoke about earlier, is just legal pirating. That's all it is. So Blackbeard even offered Bonnet his ship the revenge back, but he did put the one stipulation that Bonnet could have it when he returned but that Blackbeard would need it at the time to help with the scavenging from what was left on the ships that ran aground. Now, whether it was because Blackbeard was a very sly-speaking customer or Bonnet's want to be away from Blackbeard, he quickly agreed, and he took one of the smaller ships that they'd captured near the Grand Caymans, a small turtler ship, and headed towards the city of Bath, North Carolina, which is where Governor Eden would be found. So as Blackbeard watched 
Major Bonnet, sail away with 40 of his original men, he knew that his plan was almost completely unbreakable at this time. The rest of Bonnet's crew, they were to remain behind in order to repair the revenge for the return journey to the West Indies for when Major Bonnet got his pardon. But Blackbeard ensured that another small ship they'd obtained would hold all the valuables that it could. All the valuables from the adventure, from the Queen Anne's Revenge, and from the Revenge. So this must have been a very tense time for Blackbeard because even though his plan was in the home stretch, it was the most dangerous stretch. Because he still had roughly 300 pirates under his command, but only a very select few of them knew of the plan that he was hatching out right now. So Blackbeard then selected 40 men to crew the small ship that was now laden with all the goods that it could carry. And of those 40, 20 were his chosen men. So, on the day that Blackbeard decided to bring his final trap, Blackbeard and his 40-man crew, they departed the island. And you could only imagine the anger of the other pirates that were left at the inlet that knew right away what was happening. They knew that their captain had just abandoned all of them. But it wasn't just the men that were left that threw a fit, because 20 of the 40 members of the crew had known nothing about it. And of these 20, many of them were Major Bonnet's men. So as they were headed out to sea, they began to throw a fit and raise a fuss over what Blackbeard was doing. And it was at this time that Blackbeard and his 20 select men marooned those 20 on an island out in the ocean that was a very uninhabitable island. They had no food, no water. And it was with that, Blackbeard left, and he himself began to sail to Bath, as Major Bonnet had a couple weeks earlier. And it was near the end of June in 1718 when Blackbeard and his now very diminished number of followers, it was only roughly a couple dozen at this time, they appeared in Bath and reported to Governor Eden. Eden, true to form about being sympathetic to the piratical ways, quickly granted the pirates pardons, and it's at this time where we kind of enter a lull in Blackbeard's piratical career. Local legend is that while most of his men stayed at Orcoke Island or Orcoke Inlet, which is just down from Bath, that Blackbeard himself set up a house in Bath, and he also married a young girl, allegedly with Governor Eden presiding over the affairs, which... If you believe Captain Johnson in his book, which he does have a flair for the embellishment, we'll just say, this was roughly the 14th wife that Blackbeard had taken. And though Blackbeard and his men, they seem to have turned their backs on their piratical ways, it was all just an illusion. Because it was sometime around late August of that year that Blackbeard and his men, they set out again and they captured a French merchant ship from Bermuda. Blackbeard and his men, they took all the goods... They burned the ship to the ground, and they went back to Bath, where they could fabricate their story of finding an abandoned ship, and that is where they came with all these goods. Now, the thing is, they would have to take their case before Governor Eden. Now, this case would later come back to look unfavorably on Governor Eden. However, at the time, he could only go with the facts given to him. So, Blackbeard and a few of his followers signed statements swearing that they had found a ship that was abandoned and just happened to have these goods on it. So, Governor Eden had to take that at face value. And, by Blackbeard burning down the ship, it would be a lot harder for any French merchant to be able to identify the goods that he had taken off that ship. So, with that, we see that Blackbeard had not changed his ways. Blackbeard had just put a little better spin on it for his time in Bath. And it was around late September of 1718 when our very own Captain Jack Sparrow sails into Oracoke Inlet, Charles Vane. 
Now, Vane and Blackbeard and their crews, they had what was called a banyan at the time, which is just a huge party, or the party is affectionately referred to today as the Oracoke Orgy. Now, the party, banyan or orgy, whatever you'd prefer to call it, since pretty much all of those things are true, lasted approximately a week. And this whole week, there was nothing but food ate, the company of women, and copious amounts of alcohol drank. And it was during this time that Blackbeard would find his greatest nemesis, and that was Virginia's deputy governor, Alexander Spotwood. Now, Spotwood was aware that the piracy on the American coast was costing his colony a fair share of money and would also mean that he was losing much money from the payments he would receive on his goods as well. So it was for this reason that Spotwood began to lay the groundwork for his attack on the pirates. Now, the legal groundwork was helped when Spotswood, he arrested the former quartermaster of Queen Anne's Revenge. It was one of the many pirates that Blackbeard had left at Topsail Inlet. His name was William Howard. William Howard was put on trial, and it was a trial for show and nothing else. Spotswood was not going to let Howard be found innocent, especially since Spotswood would be presiding over the trial. So, of course, Howard was deemed guilty of piracy and sentenced to be hanged. Now, this undermined Blackbeard's pardon, since Howard was convicted of piracy while he had been with Blackbeard after the initial date of the pardon of January 5th. Now, this was shaky legal ground because obviously it did not take into effect that Blackbeard had been pardoned later that year by Governor Eden. But on that shaky legal ground, Spotswood continued to gather more and more information about Blackbeard and his men. And he'd found that their promise to cease piracy after they attained the pardon from Governor Eden, it was a sham. And this information, it gave Spotswood the legal authority to go after Blackbeard. And this authority, he managed to stretch stating that it did not matter if Blackbeard was in Virginia or another state, that he still had the legal authority to attempt to apprehend him. And that's what he decided to do. So it was on November 14, 1718, that two British warship commanders, who just happened to be lying in the, at anchor in the James River, were summoned by Governor Spotswood. They were Captain Ellis Brand and Captain George Gordon. It was in this meeting that the men decided that they needed to attack Blackbeard and they needed to clean out the den of vipers in Bath. Now, technically, Governor Spotswood, he had no command over these captains or their ships. He was granted honorary titles of vice admiral. However, it was honorary and that was all. He had no authority over these men. So after speaking with these men, the three decided that their best course of action was to charter two civilian vessels and fill them with naval volunteers. So it was on November 15th that Governor Spotswood, he summoned the owners of two Virginia trading ships, the Ranger and the Jane, and he hired these vessels to help him undertake his mission. Now, Governor Spotswood, Captain Gordon and Captain Brand, they developed a two-pronged attack, and what they were going to do is Brand would march overland and he would attack Bath from the land while Brand's first lieutenant from his warship, a man by the name of Robert Maynard, would captain the two vessels and attack Bath from the sea and would capture any pirates that were left behind on Oracoke Island. And Captain Gordon, he got the boring yet safest job of remaining on the James River as a floating reserve. For his part of the plan, Maynard was given a crew of 33 men from Brand's warship and 24 men from Gordon's warship. And of the two Virginia trading ships, Maynard chose the Jane as his flagship since it was the larger of the two, while one of Captain Gordon's junior officers, a Mr. Hyde, was sent to command the other ship. And so it was on November 17th 
Maynard and Hyde struck out to see if they could bring an end to Blackbeard. It was also on the 17th that Governor Eden's secretary, Tobias Knight, attempted to warn Blackbeard. And he warned him by sending a letter. However, he knew that for that letter to be found, he could not have anything too incriminating. So he sent two of his men that he trusted with the letter. And the letter that ended up being found stated such. My friend, if this finds you yet in harbor, I would have you make the best of your way up as soon as possible your affairs will let you. I have something more to say to you than at present I can write. The bearer will tell you the end of our Indian War, and Gannett can tell you in part what I have to say, so refer you in some measure to him. I really think these three Manair, heartily sorry at their difference with you, will be very willing to ask your pardon. If I may advise, be friends again. It's better than falling out among yourself. I expect the governor this night or tomorrow, who I believe would be likewise glad to see you before you go. I have not time to add, save my hearty respects, to you and am your real friend. It was signed, and servant, T. Knight. Now, however, the letter didn't arrive until the day of November 21st. And why that date is so meaningful is because also on the evening of the 21st, Maynard and his two ships arrived off Oracoke Island. Now, Maynard and his ships, they didn't arrive off of Oracoke Island until the evening. So they decided they'd wait until the morning of the 22nd before they attacked Blackbeard and his ship. For as they were going up to Oracoke Island, they stopped many passing ships to ensure that they weren't letting the pirates pass them. And it was in doing so that they found out that Blackbeard and his crew were at Oracoke Island. They were not all in Bath. So they knew that it was imperative that they take this ship. And it seems that for the little lull in Blackbeard's piratical career, complacency had begun to set in for... Maynard's warship, they sat on the seaward side of the island, whereas Blackbeard's ship was closer to shore. Now, Blackbeard had not put out any scouts or any other individuals to attempt to watch for ships coming so that he may be pre-warned. So what this meant was the morning of the 22nd, Maynard and his men were going to have the complete element of surprise. And now to compound issues for Blackbeard... His old friend, Israel Hands, and approximately 24 members of his crew had left and were in Bath. And that left Blackbeard with only roughly 25 pirates under his command, pretty much amounting to just a skeleton crew on his ship. So, with the complacency setting in and them not expecting any trouble, Blackbeard and his crew, the night of the 21st, there was quite the party, and there was quite the heavy drinking. And we know that three men from a trading ship that was located nearby had been on board drinking and we only know that because two of the men were so drunk they just ended up staying the night on the ship which would come to be a bad decision and this is also where one of those two men had been the man to bring the letter that was written by Tobias Knight and so it was on the morning of the 22nd Maynard cautiously moved his ships through the ever-changing sandbars around the island and at approximately 7:30 in the morning he rounded the corner and Blackbeard saw two ships coming towards him. Now, the ships were far enough away that it gave Blackbeard and his crew some time to prepare. And Blackbeard was worried enough about the coming vessels that he had his anchor cable cut so he'd have more ease of movement. With that ease of movement, Blackbeard was able to maneuver so that his starboard, that'd be the right, side was facing the oncoming ships. And waiting until they were close enough, he would try to entice them to come almost point blank before he'd fire. Now, Maynard had ordered most of his men below deck to ensure that they'd remain fit to fight and... He was truly hoping that Blackbeard would see that he had so few on deck and come and try to board his ship. 
and Maynard, sensing that the time was right, ordered the two ships to raise their flags, and they raised up the Union flag. And it was at this time that Blackbeard finally had to have realized, if he hadn't before, what was coming at him. So with this realization, Blackbeard attempted to use the knowledge of the local train to his advantage. He pressed in close to a landing beach off Orcoak Island, where he knew that there was a sandbar running parallel to the beach, and his hopes were the two ships would run aground, leaving him plenty of time to escape. His plan was not effective. Both ships were able to go around the sandbar, and, and when the two ships were close enough, Maynard stated that Blackbeard and he hailed each other. At first salutation, he drank damnation to me and my men, whom he stilted cowardly puppies, said he would neither give nor take quarters. So after the brief exchange and hostilities began, Maynard claimed that Blackbeard's first broadside virtually took out the ranger. It killed the captain that was left on the ranger, Mr. Hyde, as well as the next two commanding officers, leaving the ranger virtually captainless and drifting out to sea. So, with the ranger out of commission, that left just the Jane and Blackbeard to do battle. So after the next broadside, approximately a third of the members of Maynard's crew were also injured or killed. And there would also possibly be this small oversight of the Jane and the Ranger were both Virginia trading ships. They were not warships. They were not pirate ships. They had no cannons. Now the members on those ships, they did have muskets and they had the small arms firing ability, but they were versing a very heavily laden ship with cannons. So that was possibly a small oversight, and that is why Maynard had left the majority of his crew below deck in hopes that Blackbeard would see this as a rather one-sided fight and try to come aboard. Now, the next part of the battle, there's contradicting reports where some say that Maynard and Blackbeard's ships both ran aground, which would have left just a life-or-death race to see who could get their ships refloated first. But this seems unlikely because if that were the case, the men hiding below deck from Maynard would have had to come above deck in order to help try to lighten their load. What's more likely is to report that Blackbeard himself ran aground, whether this be by lucky small arms fire from the Jane or possibly even being pushed into the sandbar from their own cannon's recoil. But when Blackbeard was finally able to refloat his ship, he must have seen the Jane for what Maynard wanted him to see it as, an easy target. He would have seen very few men above deck still, the majority of the others being injured or dead on the deck. Now, this had been the plan by Maynard from the outset to lure Blackbeard to his ship, and Blackbeard took the bait. So, Blackbeard and his ship, they surged forward going after the Jane, and when it was close enough, his men even threw granados at the Jane, which, think about today's grenades, it was just a rudimentary, old-school style of grenade, but the grenades did very little damage. The only thing it really did was cover the ships with smoke. So then, Blackbeard and his crew, they threw grappling hooks over and they brought the two ships together. So with the two ships together, Blackbeard and his crew, they jumped over onto the Jane. And Blackbeard only brought himself and approximately ten others aboard the Jane, which they obviously had seen the few remaining men above deck on the Jane and figured that those eleven would easily outdo the four or five left on the Jane's top deck. But Blackbeard had to have had the shock of his life when he and his ten men swung over, and once they got onto the Jane, Maynard sprung his trap and gave the signal. And this left all of Maynard's men charging from below deck, screaming and firing their pistols. And Maynard himself said the odds were Blackbeard and his men numbering 10 to 11, and he and his men numbering 12. So at that time, it was 
a pretty fair fight. And it was in these moments that the Boston Newsletter spoke of a dramatic duel between Blackbeard and Maynard, which, again, so much of history, you could say, seems like a movie. Like, these two ships come together, the two main characters going head-to-head. And the Boston Newsletter stated, Maynard and Teach begun the fight themselves with their swords. Maynard making a thrust, the point of his sword against Teach's cartridge box, and bent it to the hilt. Teach then broke the guard of it and wounded Maynard's finger, but it did not disable him. Whereupon he jumped back and threw away his sword and fired his pistol, which wounded Teach. So again, that's like another movie scene. The two main characters going right at each other with the mist of battle swarming around them. You just have to picture this in your head. It had to have been just an amazing visual. So it was with that that the fight slowly began to go the Navy's way and their slight numbers advantage getting larger and larger. As a now wounded Maynard attempted to get his cutlass out, it said the Blackbeard was about to strike him down when one of Maynard's men stepped in. The Boston Newsletter again stated, DeMelt struck in between then with his sword and cut Teach's, which is Blackbeard's face, pretty much. The newspaper then stated, One of Maynard's men, being a Highlander, engaged Teach with his broadsword, who gave Teach a cut in the neck. And with this, again, another movie thing, this is like the most Clint Eastwood-style quip of all time. After being struck in the neck by the Highlander, Blackbeard was to have said to that man, Well done, lad. It was then that the Highlander swung again and took off Blackbeard's head. So that came the end of the infamous pirate. And as the final seconds were taking away on Blackbeard, the other ship, the Ranger, which was at the time captainless, finally got some semblance of order and came back to help the Jane, where it started to engage the remainder of Blackbeard's men that were left on the ship until they called for quarters. So the battle was over, but there was nearly an even worse outcome when a man known as Black Caesar attempted to carry out one last order that Blackbeard had given. Before the battle even started, Blackbeard had left Caesar in the powder room and ordered him to light the cases of powder they had if he ordered it, which would cause a great explosion and destroy their ship as well as the two ships near. Now Caesar, seeing the battle was lost, attempted to do just that, but luckily for the crews of the Ranger and the Jane, Two men who were being held prisoner were able to overpower Caesar and stop him from ultimately destroying all three ships. And so Blackbeard, he finally met his fate, and Maynard had his corpse thrown overboard, but carried his head back as proof that the notorious pirate had finally met his end. And as you've seen, Blackbeard's ultra-violent reputation, it was more of a cultivated image than a reality. For the vast majority of ships that came in contact with Blackbeard, no blood was shed at all. In fact... The only true records we have of him fighting and killing was in the final battle where he met his end. Now Blackbeard, he was able to understand that if he just cultivated the image of a horrible tyrant, that the ships would be more willing to just hand over their goods rather than fight. So even with so few battles, the aura of Blackbeard, it still exists today with many thinking that he was the most bloodthirsty pirate that ever lived, when in truth, he was just the best at psychological warfare. So, before we end today, let's take a brief look at what ended up happening to some of the other individuals we met in this story. Our very own Captain Jack Sparrow, Charles Vane, he was marooned on an island after a hurricane sank his ship. He was then rescued by a passing ship, and when he tried to join the crew under a false name, he was instantly recognized by one of the crew. Charles Vane was then tried and hung for his crimes on the 29th of March, 1721. Now, Benjamin Hornigold, he wasn't too far behind Blackbeard when... His ship was also sank by a hurricane sometime in late 1719. And for everybody's lovable reject, Major Steed Bonnet. 
After being duped by Blackbeard, he and his men once again began their pirate lives. He seemed to be doing rather well when they finally caught up with him in the Cape Fear River. However, this being Major Bonnet, it couldn't be a simple battle. Bonnet was cornered by two pirate hunting ships that had been sent by the colony of South Carolina. Upon seeing that the mouth of the river was blocked by the two ships, Bonnet decided to do his best portrayal of Charles Vane and just blast through the two ships. So the next morning, Major Bonnet started early, took the initiative, hoisted the black Jolly Roger flag, and sped towards the two ships. So as Major Bonnet was speeding towards the two ships in hopes of making his great escape, his ship ran aground. And if this wasn't comedy enough, the other two ships that were sent by Carolina also ran aground on a sandbar. So both sides, they were stuck for approximately five hours or trading small arms fire since neither had the ability to shoot cannon from the way that they were stuck on the sandbar. So unfortunately for our lovable Major Bonnet, it was one of the Carolina ships that got unstuck first, and with Major Bonnet's ship still ran aground, the ship just continued to rake Major Bonnet's ship with grape shot, and even Major Bonnet knew the game was up, but with one last show of bravado, Major Bonnet ordered his men to blow up the ship's magazine. And with one last horrible turn for Major Bonnet, his crew refused. So it was December 10th, 1718, Major Bonnet was hung for his crimes. Now, I hope you enjoyed the telling of the life and ultimate death of Blackbeard and a few of his compatriots. If you did, I encourage you to go ahead, listen to the second episode, where we will now learn about one of the most badass leaders from the age of Rome. The only thing is, this leader was not Roman, and contrary to the times that they lived in, was also not male, which made what she was able to do to Rome all the more impressive. Next episode, we will be talking about the life of one Queen Boudicca.